Welcome to The Writing Glitch. Hello, everyone. I am here this episode with Bridget Nicholson. She is an occupational therapist who has specialized in assistive technologies way back in the day where we, she tells me that she made her own switches, where today we have a lot of different styles of assistive technology. But 20 or 30 years ago, the switches and all the adaptive technologies that we have today were just in the process of being invented. So welcome to the Writing Glitch, the Emotional Kids Summit, Bridget. Thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me. And we all know that these kids, as they're headed back to school, are going to be filled with such anxiety, especially these kids that are neurodivergent. And we have wonderful guests that have been joining us for this month. And you have some very unique things that you have to share. So tell a little bit of, tell the audience a little bit about what your background is. I know I keep talking about assistive technology, but maybe people don't really understand what that means and what does it mean to be making your own switch to where you are today in your business and anything in between that you want to share. Thank you. I will try and be very brief about that. <laughs> so I graduated as an OT in 1987, but from that time started working with technology. And at the time, at the terminology is very bad now, but we used to just call it technology for the disabled or technology for kids with CP. There just was no, there wasn't even any terminology. We, I was, I graduated in South Africa, lived in South Africa, and then came over here to the US just because there was so much more happening with technology and assistive technology here. But anyway, in those early years when I graduated, in the early years here and everywhere around the whole world, there was very little in the way of assistive technology, but clearly in the US and in some other countries, there was a lot more development. And I was in, happened to be in a country where there was very little development and really very little that we could access from other parts of the world. So we were learning as much as we could. And a few of us in the country were, were making a lot of electronic boards. I learned how to solder boards and how to wire up things and make, I would drill holes in perspex and plastic and put little LEDs and have, we'd have row column scanning communication devices we made. So we made a lot of our stuff in those early days. And it's, I think it really gave me a good perspective on figuring out systems that work for individual children versus opening a catalog and saying, this is a good switch. We'll use this switch with whoever, Johnny or Joey or Jenny. We, I really am, I, Started when I started working years ago here in in Illinois. I called my company Custom Solutions because that was my goal was to customize what individual children needed. So I spent many years consulting with hundreds and thousands of adults, parents, teachers, therapists, educators, and also working with thousands of children in a lot of different environments, different countries, different kinds of environments, and. The year before COVID, with no one knew that COVID was coming up. So that year, that school year before we had the shutdown in March, at least in this country, I spent that, I really think that whole year I was on the road more than I was at home. I just happened to that year be out at lots of conferences and school districts and organizations teaching and training. And what I was doing at that stage, which became a lot more relevant during and after COVID, but at that stage, 
I was getting to the stage as an adult getting older and looking at where things were going with technology. I still, I'm very, I very firmly believe in the need for assistive technology when it's wisely planned and it's when it's used in the correct situations. But at the same time, we're seeing our children moving more and more towards technology and they are not developing their social skills. They're not developing their interpersonal skills. They're not even developing their own sensory regulation skills because instead of being outside playing on bikes and falling and skinning their elbows and hurting themselves, not that I think they all should be hurting themselves, but what I'm saying is they're not experiencing their environment. They're not out playing and roughhousing and climbing and messing around in the mud and punching each other and doing all those kid games and things that they should be doing. And so as an assistive technology professional or as a professional who has talked for many years primarily about assistive technology, I really took a step back and I started teaching far more, not more, but I started including a lot more information about how do we get our children's bodies and their brains ready for the kinds of world that they live, for the world that they live in and the kinds of functioning individuals they need to be. And technology by itself is not it. Technology in itself is very useful, but our children are using far too much technology. They're using it too often. They're using it for too many hours of the day, whether it's their own personal individual recreational technology that they want or that they choose, or in the schools, we are giving children more and more technology because there's more that's out there. So what I started doing in 2018, 2019 was started teaching a lot more about the need for regulation, sensory regulation, emotional regulation, social relationships, social interaction, communication, and that whole neurological development of that child's body. Because I personally do not want to end up being a therapist for 40, 50 years and then dying and thinking that all of my impact was putting children in front of more screens. What I want to do is I want children to move. I want them to integrate their bodies and their brains. I want them to have lots of experiential learning. And within that, we also look at how technology is used as a tool. But I've, I'm really very deep right now in the, in this focus of developing content online that can be used by any child around the whole world that allows teachers to bring that component into their classrooms that really helps children with their body and brain integration. And with body and brain integration, there's also the component of social interaction and really look at research-based programs and strategies that really impact learning. So that's really where I'm at now is I still do a lot of teaching about assistive technology, but I'm now also talking a lot about just things like the research about how rhythm impacts brain development is extremely conclusive. And the one thing as we're talking today, I do want to talk a little bit about what the research shows about rhythm and what the research shows about sensory integration and sensory regulation activities and all the approaches that we use as therapists. We really need to be looking at what the research says before we dive headlong into doing all of these things. So I guess that that is my brief introduction into where I am right now and what I'm doing. My focus is developing online programs that can be beneficial for many children, for large groups of children, 
and and also a lot of training. And so I've, I'm am providing a lot of online training, but I'm also going into districts and doing one and two day interactive workshops. And that's really where I'm at now with what I'm doing. You mentioned whole classroom activities, and that's what my focus has been over the last five years is what can we do that we've been doing as therapists, more like on if you're looking at the MTSS model, the multidisciplinary tiered systems of support, that tier three where we're pulling them out of the classroom and we're doing therapy over here on the side. What is it that all kids would benefit from and all kids would improve their grades? I've been doing a lot of looking at that. And I think that's where you and I connect when we met a couple weeks ago, where we really see that a lot of what we do is beneficial for all students, not just the kids with severe physical disabilities. Exactly. So you mentioned a lot of self-regulation and sensory integration I don't know if everybody knows what that exactly means that's listening. Could you go into that a little bit more? So sensory integration was developed by Jean Ayres in the, not that uh, she coined the term and used the term in her treatment program and protocol that she produced. So sensory integration is really, and that's what most therapists as therapists know sensory integration to be is what Gene Ayers developed years ago. And while it's a very, in in some cases with some children, it's a very effective method of treatment and approach. It's very highly specialized. I personally believe that I don't think that therapists should be using sensory integration type techniques unless they've really been SI trained, because I think that those strategies can be very powerful, but they can be powerful in a positive way and they can be powerful in a negative and a destructive way. So while all of those vestibular type activities and all of those tactile activities and all of the sensory type activities that therapists can do, they are very beneficial for some children. There is a little bit of controversy and a little bit of, in the research, it's not fully conclusive that all of those strategies really are beneficial for all children. And I don't think we always look for that in research. We really look at for the kind of child I'm working with, what are the strategies that really are most likely to benefit that child? But what we've moved away from, and I do, I talk about this extensively when I do my full day workshops, because I look at, I have actually tables where I look at the strategies and the approaches for the sensory integration approach. That's really what I call the AIRS approach, because that's what she set up as a very highly structured program that is based on research and people for years now have been trained specifically on that. But what we're seeing in the schools, and again, I when I'm doing webinars, I talk to people around the whole world. So I'm just going to preface this by saying what I'm seeing in the schools here in this country. And I don't, I do actually present in a few other countries as well. So I'm always interested in feedback when I say statements like this, because it may be different in your country or where you're in at in the world. But what I'm seeing in the schools here is Not only therapists, but teachers are really understanding the need for children to be within sensory environments that are beneficial for them and not those sensory environments that are too busy and overwhelming and too visually complex and too noisy. So the sensory environments that are distracting and destructive, people are really starting to understand the need for that. And they're also really starting to look more at the word sensory has become such a buzzword in the last five years. It really wasn't. 
But at the same time, here's the problem with that. Everyone seems to think if a kid or a group of kids has a sensory problem, then give them a move and sit cushion, give them an air wedge cushion to sit on, or give them a whole lot of fidgets, or give them a bouncy ball. And I have such mixed feelings about all of that, because really, for some children, give them a bouncy ball to sit on, and then they're going to bounce a whole lot more, and they're going to have far less proximal control and strength for doing anything, especially for controlled fine motor activities, or for learning, or for visual contact and visual tracking. So the one thing I think we've seen is we've seen this move away from what really used to be a very highly specialized approach that really only very few children could ever really benefit from to a situation in schools now where everyone talks about the sensory needs of kids and yet the whole approach has been so diluted and has become virtually the thing about give the kid a fidget. He has a sensory issue. Find three fidgets and let him choose a fidget. And I think it's so much more than that. So the thing that I'm really looking at doing is all children, regardless of their age and grade level and functional level, and regardless of who they are, every single child in their academic environment has expectations placed on them in terms of learning and performance and participation and interaction. Those are all requirements, and it's going to be different for different kids and who they are and where they are learning. But the fact is, every child has their own internal sensory needs, their own ability to control what they are experiencing within themselves, not only control, but to even identify what's happening, their own interoception. Before we even look at the environment, we have to look at what is that child doing with their own interoception and their own sense of their internal self, their body somatic interoception and neurological interoception. Both of those are important. Then okay, need so to I'm going to pause you right there because we get up a lot of parents that are going to be listening to this. You mentioned that word interoception, and they may not have any idea what it means. So could you elaborate a little bit about interoception? So interoception is that child's ability to identify, first of all, to just feel what's going on in their body. So it could be things like digestion. They may need to use the bathroom. They mean may need to, they may be too hot or they may be too cold or they may have a headache or they may be hungry. And what happens is if they're not able to really identify the first of all, even before the identification of what is that inside internal feeling, some children with significant sensory issues don't even feel their ability, their interoception is so dampened that they could have headaches or pain or discomfort, or need to go to the bathroom, but they don't have those sensations and they don't know what the sensation is. So I have a, it's a good illustration of this, what interoception is. I'm working with a little boy (laughs) who is, he's about 10 years old. He's on the spectrum, very bright kid. Oh my gosh. He knows so much about, he was actually flying from one country to the other. And he taught me more about planes than I ever thought I'd need, would ever learn from a 10 year old. And a very bright little boy. And he actually ended up, sadly, in hospital with very severe pneumonia. And he was in hospital for a long time. I think it was 10 days. And he's now out of hospital. Thankfully, he's out. And he's he's recovering very slowly. But what they really figured out with him is he was unable to really express what he was feeling He had pneumonia, and so he wasn't breathing well enough, but I'm not sure that people around him really saw that, you know, until it was much worse. 
He wasn't talking about pain. He wasn't talking. He was functioning and not saying anything. And the doctors had said by this stage, by the time they saw him, most people would have said something by then about how they feel, what the breathings, what the pains, what the sense of constriction, whatever that is. And it was such a strong illustration to me about how if a child is not identifying what's going on within themselves, how do we identify what's going on within themselves? Mm-hmm. And the sense of hearing, for instance, is not really an interoception sense. It's one of the five major senses. And then there are other senses. There's vestibular sense and proprioception and kinesthesia. Those are other senses where children make sense of their environment. So when they first start learning to walk and when they're climbing up a climbing apparatus or when they're trying to jump off of something high, that's not interoception as much as it's that sense of uh, proprioception and motor planning and kinesthesia and their own body control. So interoception is more organs and brain and internal organs. When you start talking about muscles and joints, you're talking about proprioception and kinesthesia. Either way, Whatever the terms are, all of that is the way that child feels internally. And most children are not able to tell us how they feel. Some of those children are not even able to identify for themselves how they feel. And so often we see the acting out and the explosions and the behavior, what we will term behavior, which is really communication. I'm not saying that some children are going to act out voluntarily because they want to or because they're making a decision to not be doing something or to be doing something that they shouldn't. It's a very, it's a difficult dividing line, but there are many children where they are not able to identify how they're feeling or what they think or what's happening and they're not able to express that. And it comes out as a behavior, as a response that may be a negative response or a response that's not expected or that we are, that we don't want. So Really, what we need to be looking at is we need to, first of all, look at, because you're talking about children in classrooms and about entire groups of children, we're all talking about that, but every individual child sitting or standing in a classroom of 10 or 20 other children or more, that child has their own internal body and sensations that they have to deal with, then, and on all of those levels, the interoception and the kinesthesia proprioception. But then also they have the sensations that are happening around them, the five, what really comes into them as their five primary senses. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I think we so, I think we don't do a good job of this. The children that have struggles and challenges with their visual ability or their auditory ability, again, the only way we really pick that up is we only really pick up those children that have the most significant challenges because that's what our eye tests and our vision tests pick up. And that's what our hearing tests pick up are the children that have the most significant challenges. Because but we're so many, picking up visual acuity. We're not picking up the perceptual part of it. Absolutely. And everything, binocular vision, and really even just having your eyes work together, the motor control, movement control of the eyes is as important as movement control of the hands for typing or for tying a shoelace. So movement control, a child that has problem tying their shoelace is most likely going to be the kind of child that has trouble reading every single word along a line Mm -hmm. because their eye muscles have to move together, that binocular movement and the visual tracking. I don't think we do a great job overall in education of identifying what, and it's a very challenging, I think the identification is so challenging. Plus, there's no school I know of that can do visual perception testing on every kid and go and do very very deep 
auditory perception testing with every child. The one thing we can do, I feel so strongly about this. The one thing we can do with all children is we can incorporate certain types of activities in the classroom on an everyday basis that actually work on some of those sensory type skills. Now, I don't think there's any kind of a magic program bullet anywhere where we can say, here's the program, sensory program ABC, and we're going to do this sensory program ABC with every kid, and it's going to help them all with their sensory regulation. However, every child has different levels of auditory perception. Every child has the ability that auditory figure ground. When you're looking at busy classrooms nowadays are way busier than they used to be. In the old days, it used to be every child sitting in a little, sitting in lines with their desk in front of them, beautiful lines. Kids were quiet in those days. I'm not saying this is good. I think there's good and bad. But in the old days, it used to be one teacher up the front, one teacher talking. Behavior was expected. The behavior that was expected in classrooms was kids, be quiet. You sit down and you listen and you look at me. Otherwise, consequences. And that was the old style of teaching. And we don't have classrooms like that anymore. Mm -hmm. We have so many flexible classrooms and we have classrooms where there's more than one adult in the room. And we have classrooms where it's broken up with classrooms are so much more flexible and different nowadays. And it's good and it's bad because it becomes a much more challenging sensory environment for most children nowadays. So the thing that I started delving into very deeply about three years ago, and I was so excited about the research that I just dove headline headlong into this. When I look at the research, and I've got long documents on my website, I'll talk to you later on at the end about the website because you were talking about the, I've set up a site that people can get onto and be members. And what I've got on there is I've got lists and lists of research. And I look very closely at the research on sensory the, the sensory approaches that therapists use in the classroom. And I've got some fantastic documents that actually go and review all the research that's out there on sensory approaches. And what I'm really finding is that it's very, some research will talk about things like compression garments or joint compressions for proprioception. And some research is very positive about that. And other research is very inconclusive. And when you look at things that are sensory approaches that we've used for many years, weighted vests, different kinds of seating systems that are dynamic or non-dynamic, sensory things that we do with the children, with children's bodies, things like brushing or swinging or spinning or joint compressions or weighted anything, weighted vests, weighted, whatever. All of that is that there's a lot of inconclusive research. And I'm not saying at all that those systems don't work. And I will say from a parent perspective, I have two children who are 24 and 22. And my 24-year-old has Asperger's and when she was younger was very significantly challenged with having Asperger's. She had very significant, as a matter of fact, I think when she was younger, it, it really wasn't even Asperger's. It was really just um, significant autism and she was very significantly impacted. And I used absolutely every single sensory strategy in the book. I've always been a very motivated, very, I love OT. I love the OT approach. I love what we can do as OTs. And I, it was very challenging having my own child with special needs. But I'll tell you something, I used 
everything in the book. And there is some sensory strategies that were incredibly beneficial for her. And it's this, so what I think is that when you look at all these different sensory things that can be used within a full program, some things are going to be very highly beneficial for some children. Some things that really work wonderfully with some children are actually going to be significantly detrimental to other children because every child has their own sensory needs. But the one thing I was particularly excited about was when I started looking at the research on rhythm, it was spectacular. I'm going to use the word spectacular. <laughs> and I want to challenge every one of you reading this. You go and look at research. If you do a search on research and brain development or research and neurological development, or you do a search on research and learning in K-12 through children, the research is absolutely overwhelming. There's no research I found out there that said we took 20 children and we involved them, we included them in some kind of a rhythmic training program and there was no outcome. All the research shows, all the research shows that there is direct benefit because, and it makes sense when you think about it, when you think of the whole neurological basis of it, it really works on the brainstem and it works on sound, not only sound coming through the ears, but when you actually, when you pair that with vision. So if you think about drumming, for instance, if you're drumming yourself and you're listening to the sound and you're actually feeling the drum beat or you're feeling the drumsticks in your hands and you're feeling the feel of drumming, whether it's one-handed or two-hand, and then you've got the actual specific rhythm and you've got the vision and you've got that kinesthetic feel. Drumming is one of the most incredible, absolutely significantly beneficial interventions. Now, the one thing I will say, there are very few classrooms in a school environment where there are classrooms that are right next to each other that during the day can set up a whole bunch of drums and say, okay, we're all going to drum. Because every classroom that's right next to each other is going to be in a different part of where they are with what they need to be doing. But you can set up experiential rhythmic sensory motor activities for children in classrooms that the whole group can participate in. And one thing I say to all of my people that I train, if I'm not a teacher, I, at this stage, I, with all of these programs that I've developed, I wish I was a teacher with a group of 20 kids. And for a whole year, what I would do, and this is what I suggest to teachers, take something that for your group of students is a very concrete a skill or a something, some academic skill or some kind of skill that you can measure very concretely. I like using writing as a measurement because I think writing can be very concrete with the way you measure it. And there are lots of different ways of measuring writing. And when I say writing, it could be writing, writing on a piece of paper. It could be typing on a keyboard. It could be speech recognition with a device. Even mm -hmm. drawing, if you're looking at young children, drawing is a method of children showing what they know. And so drawing and annotation is writing as well. So take something that is, I, and I know you do a lot with writing. So, you know, I think you would have lots and lots of very valuable opinions in this area. But even if it's, it could be writing, it could be time on task is a much more difficult thing to measure with a group of kids. You really have to have something that's easy to measure with a group of students. And at the beginning of a school year or the beginning of a three-month period or so, you do those baseline testing of whatever the skill is you've decided to measure. 
And then with this group of students, you incorporate rhythmic movement into their daily academic lives. And then periodically, you do the measurement of that skill. And obviously, there's there's quantitative and qualitative evaluation. So as a teacher, I could very easily, in terms of doing a qualitative measurement, I could, over a period of three months, just observation, professional observation is an important part of qualitative evaluation. So Mm -hmm. I could really visually by just doing observations, I could see how those children are developing over time and if the rhythmic movement is impacting their behavior and their responses and their ability to sit down and work. But what I would also do is do something that's a very strong, concrete, quantitative measure so that over a period of time, you can really see what the impact has been. So what I've set up online, because I really couldn't find anything else out like that, there's one group that's doing this with preschool children in Australia, but I just don't see anybody else doing this. Being able to incorporate rhythmic movement into a classroom can really make children, to some extent, I think it can increase motivation. I, With some of the rhythmic movement videos that I've put online, I've had feedback. The feedback's good, but it's not the feedback about children loving doing the videos, I get that feedback all the time. I have Mm -hmm. thousands of people that are looking at those videos every month. I am happy about kids liking them because I want them to be motivated to work. But more importantly, I want children right before they sit down and do academics. So it could be an academic reading activity, an academic writing activity, something where there's focus and attention needed. You can do three, four or five minutes of highly structured rhythmic movement before that activity, and then do a one one minute or a 30 seconds calm down, cool down breathing activity. And then the students all sit down and they do whatever their academic activity is. And so I don't see, I see the incorporation of highly structured rhythmic movement into classrooms as being something that's doable if teachers have the content to use. If they don't have to be making the content or finding the content or figuring out how to create those activities, if they can use it already. It's the reason I started literally in my room next door here, I put up a green screen and I started video recording students and putting the, like I I made a space theme. So I recorded some students doing very highly, very specific movements. And then I put some space theme animations on there. So I think I think I might have digressed because I'm not even exactly sure what the whole question was, but I think we were talking about how to incorporate some of this into full classrooms. Yes, we were. And I've been letting you go because you've been sharing such brilliant nuggets. And so I want to take a moment here to recap some of these things that Bridget has been talking about. And you've been talking a lot about rhythm. You've been talking about the whole perceptual sensory process, mentioning a lot about auditory processing, a little bit about visual processing and the fact that we have to team our eyes together. One of the areas that I hear and I see in just in general, I hear a lot about is the fact that people don't understand some of the nuances of auditory processing. And we talk about it as therapists, but I don't think that the teachers totally understand what we're trying to portray as therapists to for them to understand. For example, kids that are in the back of the room and are 
always distracted, but yet they're hearing the motor running for the heat or the fan for the air conditioning because that's where the vent is coming in. And that is a, almost like taking over the sound that's entering so they can't hear the teacher. I think about this a lot because I do have auditory processing issues. I'm going to give you an example. We were talking about different classrooms. When I was in fifth grade, they had just revamped the entire wing of the school. And there was this big push in the early 70s to be one big classroom with dividers. My name, before I got married, began with a while. And they always put us in alphabetical order. So I was always in the back of the room, never could hear anything the teacher was saying because there were so many other distractions that I just made my way through it. And I remember several days because obviously it made an impression on me. I would sit back. What's going on over in this left floor's room? And I kind of like my eyes went over there because the divider stopped before my seat was since I couldn't understand the teacher up front because of the angle I could hear her better because she was on my right side and so it was just one of those things where it was really frustrating as a child but I didn't have the tools and the understanding and the knowledge the interoception awareness to be able to acknowledge that and even advocate for myself as a child and go home to mom and say, I really need my seat moved. You wouldn't even know. You wouldn't even know. Absolutely. And, And so I bring this up based on the conversation that we've been having because I want parents to be aware of these nuances and what, where are the, where's the child sitting in the classroom and how is that impacting them? The primitive reflexes, depending on where a child's sitting in the classroom, if you if you have to look to the right and you've got an ATNR that kicks in when you look to the right, what's going to happen? while well, you're going to be all over your desk. And if you have to look to the right and that kicks in, what's going to happen when you go back to your paper? You're not going to know where you were. So you get lost between the translation. But the ATNR on the left is appropriate for for their age, why can't they sit on the opposite side of the desk, the two desks that are facing one another, so that the ATNR doesn't kick in? But exactly. we don't. But we don't un- have enough. OT doesn't get in the classroom enough to observe all of the students. We're pulled out, and we have this select number. And so, I what we, I've been looking at is how do we as an OT get into the classroom? and are available at least one day a week for the teachers to be doing co-teaching model. And I like the idea of the rhythm because the rhythm, you're right, is it gets down even below the subconscious core. Exactly. Because it actually, when you think of the, there's auditory processing, because auditory and visual processing actually have some very similar the one's auditory, the one's vision. But when you think of things like you were talking about auditory figure ground perception. Mm-hmm. So when you have a, a room that, and when you look at visual figure ground, we are seeing so many more children now. Honestly, the fact, and I'm just going to grab my iPad here real quick to show a point. What happens is 
Children are on so, screens. But I'm just going to pause a moment. So for the people that are listening to this, if you grab the companion course, you'll be able to see what Bridget is going to be showing here in just a moment. So go ahead, get up there and show it. So here's the thing. Um, Sherry, we've been in the field for a while now. I've been a therapist for over 36 years. And honestly, I, it's shocking to me the children that we're seeing with more significant challenges. And I see this question all the time. Are we just diagnosing more children? No, what we're seeing is we are seeing more children. First of all, I do think we have much better diagnostic tools now, and I think we have much better understanding of what's happening with children, with their development. But at the same time, visual and auditory processing, I'm seeing so many more children with more significant problems with, and I don't necessarily mean, as you said, visual acuity. Children are able to see the board, but when you've got now, we don't just have blackboards or chalkboards nowadays where there's just some writing on the board. We now have screens with massive visual complexity. And what happens is, this is, I always talk about this with iPads. When you look at the thickness of this iPad, this is the thickness of the screen. When you think about 2D and 3D worlds, when our children are outside playing in mess and mud and jumping, and they're looking and interacting with their 3D world. And they're also dealing with speed of things. So if someone's throwing a ball at them, they're either going to try and catch the ball in time. And if they don't think they can, they're probably going to try and duck or move away from the ball. So it's these very complex, basic things that happen in play that are so vital and so essential for the way that children develop. And the way that they develop is going to impact they're functioning in an academic environment and then being able to meet their academic demands. But this is what's happening. Our children are growing up visually in an environment that is not 3D. It's about a quarter of an inch thick. There is no 3D visual perception that children learn with these screens. And I love screens. I love technology. I think technology is absolutely, if we use it correctly, it can be used incredibly beneficially. So I'm never going to say our children shouldn't be using screens, but I am going to say the fact that they're not out playing as much and moving as much as they're not anywhere like they used to be is impacting their development. We're seeing children with far more primitive reflexes that are that are carrying, all, all babies have primitive reflexes when they're born. Mm -hmm. They need to get the, so for those people that don't understand what primitive reflexes are, the very brief summary or the very simple summary is that all babies are born with reflexes. All animals are born with reflexes. All living beings are born with reflexes. And they reflexes that really help them survive and help them develop and grow. And so they're normal when they're little tiny infants. We want to see all those reflexes. If they don't have those reflexes, then we know that they have some kind of developmental problem. But what happens is that if those developmental reflexes are not integrated and if they don't, if those reflexes don't mature and develop and then children learn to develop movements that are more controlled and they're not just reflexes, they're more controlled movements. I'm not saying that if they have primitive reflexes that are not integrated, that they necessarily have special needs. But what I am saying is that if you see those primitive reflexes there, then you probably are going to be dealing with a child that has some kind of additional learning disability or difficulty. Absolutely. So and, identifying, and identifying them really takes a skilled eye. 
I yes, yes. Identifying them and also I think that there are so many movements and manners of of children moving and doing things that are just they are overlooked and not identified. And again, I think of the old way that children used to be in classrooms. I, and I have to just emphasize, I'm not saying this is the way it should be. I'm just saying in comparison, kids used to sit in a very structured way in classrooms. They all used to sit, they were supposed to be sitting on a chair with their feet on the floor, upright, not moving around, sitting, looking and listening, like lit, literally 20 little robots sitting and listening and not moving. And what we're seeing now, though, and in those days, if that child, and I, again, this every single one of these topics is a very big topic. We could talk for days on this, but even just pencil grip. When you think of pencil grip in the old days, old, in, the, in all the years of working, we used to put so much emphasis on pencil grip. We used to put so much emphasis on all kids sitting at the same desk, sitting in the same way, and if there were differences in movement, I feel like it was picked up quicker. Nowadays, I love flexible seating in classrooms. I absolutely love it. However, I also think it's the same, the exact same thing as sensory regulation and sensory approaches. We've gone from not anywhere near enough flexible seating and positioning and options for working to now the opposite extreme where no matter who the kids are, I went, I'll give you another child example. Actually, a few children. I was in a middle school, just I've been in this middle school a lot lately. And I love that they have lots of this middle school, the whole school, almost every room has lots and lots of options for kids for alternate seating. This one classroom I go into, there's a couple of classrooms I go into where some of the same students are in those rooms. Children with exceptionally low muscle tone and exceptionally low physical endurance and just able to sustain an upright posture and work. So you know what those children do? Because all children in that whole class, that whole school can literally just choose whatever they want to sit in or on. Those two children always, in every room that they're in, they find the most comfortable, supportive, loungy type chair that they can possibly find. And they're sitting like that for long periods of the day. Mm-hmm. And I've said a few things, but if people don't want to hear it, they don't want to hear it. So the fact is, we are missing children with primitive reflex integration challenges. We are missing many children with auditory perception problems. And auditory perception is all kinds of things. It's sequencing, it's segmenting, it's auditory memory, it's discriminating, it's that whole figure ground as well as not what am I supposed to be listening to, but even just understanding and discriminating those sounds. It's Mm -hmm. even things like localization because Wherever the sound is coming from, some kids have a really hard time with that. Visual perception as well. So the program that I set up has sound levels because I'm very keenly aware of the whole auditory discrimination problem and I believe we should be working on it very strongly and the visual perception problem. So the program that I set up has four different movement levels. It has M1, 2, 3, and 4. So M1 is one movement that gets repeated over and over again. And with that one movement, if there's crossing of the midline, it's a very simple crossing midline movement. M2 has two movements that are repeated over and over again. So that would be a crossing midline movement. And then we have upper body crossing midline. I have lower body crossing midline. I have rotation. I have lateral flexion. And so there are four different levels of movement. 
And then there are four different levels of sound. Mm -hmm. So what happens is there are hundreds of videos that children can be following. There you start off at movement level one, sound level one, and then you can gradually move up. And therapists are very good at figuring out by watching. They need to be watching their students and how they're doing. They may not be able to move up through the movement levels as quickly as the sound levels. They may be able to move up to more complex sound levels, but still stay at the lower movement levels. But I have a whole program and I have a whole framework. Teachers may say, I do want to start at M1S1, but I only have three minutes before a writing activity. So I have a whole lot of three-minute type activities. If they have five minutes before writing, I have five-minute activities. So it's a I the rhythm and the movement is a is to me it's a missing link with what we can and should be doing with kids because the research is extremely overwhelmingly positive about how much imp- rhythm impacts impacts brain development and regulation. Wow. What a conversation we've been having, but we are out of time. I realize. I've been so involved in the conversation. I had lost track of time and I went, oh my, we need to end this conversation. Bridget, can you tell people how to find out more about you? So I have a website that I put all my training on. It's bridgetnicholson.com. And on that website, I have lots. I have lots of webinars. I have five webinars coming up in the next three, three or four weeks. And I do. I have a membership that you can get on. And then you've got everything that I've ever created is on my membership site. And then also, I'm very eager to get in and do workshops for districts. I do one and two day, very highly interactive workshops. People love them because we do a lot of the things that you would do with your kids. So if I'm going to be teaching you for a whole day, I'm going to run you through a day of how I would run a classroom. There are some times that are learning times. There are some times you're doing things. Sometimes you're moving. So we do a lot of very interactive hands-on workshops. Beautiful. Beautiful. This has been Sherry from The Writing Glitch, and you've been listening to Bridget Nicholson here on the Emotional Kids Summit. Wow, all the little golden nuggets that she dropped. You probably can need to go over into the companion course to see some of the stuff that we've shared on the screen that really wasn't verbalized. Please go ahead, go over there and take advantage of some of the free resources that are inside the companion course. If you sign up for it during the month of August, it is a different price if you don't get to hear this webinar podcast until after August 31st, 2023, you will notice that the price will be around 197. So get in early and get to hear what some of these wonderful experts are having to say. So Bridget, thank you. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Sherry. Thanks for inviting me.